The letter of James is not a long book. It's just 108 verses. And in those 108 verses, there are 59 imperatives. <laughs> 59 statements telling us to do something. Okay, I confess I didn't count myself, but the very good commentary I read this week did. It means that every couple of verses, this letter has commands for us. Counsel, advice, and action that we are meant to take. It's a busy sort of letter, and it feels a bit different from the more familiar letters that we find in the New Testament. You read a little bit here, and you know you're not reading Paul. It's not that Paul never tells his churches what to do, right? When the Corinthians were making a mess of their community meals, he told them to shape up, to pay attention to one another's needs and make room for everyone at the table. When the Galatians were taken with a group of teachers muddying the heart of the gospel, Paul told them to stay true to the boldness of the message they had received. But Paul spends lots of his letters, even the ones focused on very practical concerns in his churches, on detailed theological arguments. The Corinthians are divided along lines of who's more and less honorable in society. So Paul expounds on the foolishness of Christ, whose strength was weakness, whose honor was dishonor. The Galatians are fighting over which Jewish ritual laws are still binding for them. So Paul writes at length on the meaning of freedom in Christ. This seems to be Paul's usual approach. If something is wrong in the community, it must be rooted in a lack of understanding. So he writes to help his hearers fully understand the richness of Christ, to undergird their community life with better theology. That's a good approach, of course. Certainly a necessary one at times. But we find something different in James. Like Paul, James sees problems among the Christians he's writing to. He sees communities who show favoritism to the wealthy, who use words carelessly and harmfully, who waste their energy in judging one another. But he doesn't exactly seem to think that a lack of understanding is the problem. He doesn't get into lengthy theological discourses about sin and grace or about who Jesus is and what his identity means. No, James seems to think his hearers basically understand plenty. You don't need to sit around and think about the faith any more than you already have, James says. You've done enough of that. You need to take what you already know seriously. You need to put this beautiful faith of Jesus into practice. You need to be doers of the word, and not merely hearers. Hence all those imperatives. James wants you to put legs on your faith, to get going already, to act. I don't know if this letter is a familiar one for you or not. In my experience, it's not given a whole lot of attention in church. Martin Luther, in particular, did not think highly of James at all. And I think it's often sort of glossed over or ignored, left on its own near the end of the New Testament. But when I saw that we have five weeks of readings coming up from this letter right now, this season, I decided to give it another look and it felt fresh and alive to me. This past year and a half has given us lots of time to think, 
Lots of time to ask questions about what our faith means and what it has to say to us in the middle of this time of uncertainty and upheaval. We're not entirely out of that time, as we all know, but we're certainly in a very different place than we were a year ago or even six months ago. And James's voice calling us to put our acting in line with our thinking feels like a welcome one to me right now. An invitation not just into Christian thinking, but into Christian practice, into Christian life in all its fullness. We don't know very much at all about the circumstances that occasioned this letter. Its author, its audience, even its time of composition are sort of all up for debate. And in a way, that's, I think, part of its forcefulness. When we know so little about its context, we can't help but hear it as addressed to us. There's no real way out that it was for somebody else. And here at the start of the letter, James has strong and clear instructions. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to anger, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. So there are a handful of those 59 imperatives right there in that one little paragraph. And leading the charge is the call to listen before we speak. That can be a hard one, don't you think? To really listen to another person is not just a passive activity. It's a profoundly active one, demanding that we concentrate, that we give our time and our attention to someone else, that we seek to understand what she thinks, what she has experienced, and what she wants to communicate. It means being curious, open, receptive. It's hard work, actually. It's not just sitting there. And it goes against much of the culture around us that prefers easy labels and sound bites and snap judgments. Listening requires that we slow down, that we withhold judgment, that we simply be present to another person and his experience. Sometimes listening can be a particular challenge for Christians, I think. I mean, we are part of a religion that puts a very high value on words. After all, we cherish scripture. We have hymn texts for every imaginable occasion. We worship a God who speaks creation into being. We even refer to Jesus as the word incarnate, for Pete's sake. Christians can be anxious to speak, to share the wisdom that we found in our faith. And that's good. But James reminds us that listening comes first. In his book, Life Together, written to help guide the seminary he was involved in starting for the Confessing Church in Germany in the 1930s, Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke powerfully about the call to listen to one another. These are his words. The first service that one owes to others in the fellowship consists in listening to them. Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends us his ear. So it is his work that we do, 
for our brothers or sisters when we learn to listen to them. Christians, especially ministers, so often think they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others, that this is the one service they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. Listening can be a greater service than speaking. We forget that sometimes, don't we? I'm sure it is a particular occupational hazard for pastors, but any of us can feel that when we're faced with someone going through a challenging time, we need to come up with something wise to say, some profound words that will make it all seem better. And maybe there's a word that will help, but often truly listening is what's needed. Witnessing the experience of the person you are with, allowing her to tell her story, giving her the gift of your undivided attention, even for a short time, because your attention is a gift. It's something that can't be obtained anywhere else. There's something profoundly healing in being listened to. We mustn't forget that. And there is something profoundly dangerous in losing our ability to listen. Bonhoeffer goes on here. Many people are looking for an ear that will listen. They do not find it among Christians, because these Christians are talking when they should be listening. But he who can no longer listen to his brother will soon be no longer listening to God either. This is the beginning of the death of the spiritual life. Anyone who thinks that his time is too valuable to spend keeping quiet will eventually have no time for God and his brother, but only for himself and his own follies. Oof. Hard words, right? but still important ones, all these years after they were written. Our spiritual lives depend on our willingness to listen to our sisters and brothers, to our neighbors in need, to God. I think James would agree. And like Bonhoeffer, he would appoint us to the God who is gracious with us. That's where this section began, after all. Every generous act of giving, with every perfect gift, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You know who God is, James reminds us. God is the generous giver, the source of the many ways we have been gifted and blessed. God is generous with you, so you can be generous with others. You can be generous with your time, lending an ear. You can be generous with your attention, setting aside distractions. You can be generous with your judgments, seeking to understand before you speak. We believe in a God who gives abundantly, so live like it already. This is what you ought to see when you look in the mirror, according to James. Someone gifted by God. Someone given new birth in Christ. Someone given this day to be alive in the presence of our generous and gracious God. So, in the imperative spirit of James, try that this week. Try looking at yourself in the mirror now and then in that way. 
recalling the God who gives every perfect gift. Don't forget the generosity shown to you. Remember, and let it turn you toward others. Thanks be to God. Amen.